Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. I've done a number of non-clinical topics recently, and I want to get back to doing more clinical work, but this interview was just too good to try to delay. Today, you're going to hear a discussion that I had with Sarah Mojarad. She is a lecturer who holds appointments in the School of Engineering and the School of Medicine at USC, and her primary areas of expertise are social media science communication and online professionalism. And I actually started my connection with Sarah via Twitter. I found her discussions incredibly insightful and reached out to her and asked if she'd be willing to talk to to the audience. She does a number of things on Twitter that I really had not seen another person do. And, and I find her presence to be one that we really need in science and medicine communication through social media. She talks a lot about why science and medicine experts really have something to provide to social media, the benefits that are there, as well as the potential risks and how to mitigate them. She will go back and look at her old Twitter threads and break them down the same way we might at a journal club when we're looking at an article. She will take a look at the way certain companies directly market to the consumer for medical products and break down the strategies they're using, as well as the scientific claims and whether they hold water or not. She engages the STEM community in social media in a way that I think in general furthers the collegial discussion that we're all really looking to have and that I find to be the biggest benefit of social media. So in this discussion today, we're gonna to talk a little bit about what the benefits of being on social media are as a medical provider, what the potential pitfalls are, some ways to mitigate them, as well as a couple of specific questions about how she handles certain events online. I found this discussion to be incredibly refreshing and it renewed my faith in social media as a tool for science communication. Now, Sarah and I recorded this before the majority of the COVID outbreak in the United States, so you're not going to hear us talk about that very much, as well as before she took a break from social media for a little bit. And we'd actually talk a little bit about taking breaks from social media and whether you should or should not announce them. And this discussion occurred before she did the same in real life. And so we don't get into that at all. I want to also acknowledge that everybody is working from home and... Sarah's recording in a place with a lot of background city noise, and there just wasn't a way to get around that given what we're all dealing with. So with that said, I hope you really enjoy this interview. I'm going to let Sarah introduce herself and we'll take it away. My name is Sarah Mojarad, and I'm a lecturer at USC, and I have faculty appointments at the School of Engineering and the School of Medicine. So before I joined USC, I was working at Caltech and I co-created the first course on social media for scientists. And it was really the first opportunity to bring about the issues and opportunities that this technology can bring for people in STEM. So I was recruited to USC to continue to develop this program. And when I first started, the Dean of Medicine had heard about what I was doing. And he actually was the one who wanted a program up there for medical students. So that was about three years ago. And that's really how I got started with um, the whole area in medicine. I actually am interested a little bit in the, the course of the workshop that you teach. Who is that aimed at? What sorts of things do you talk about in general principles? Yeah, so it was pretty amazing to have such tremendous access to medical students considering their curriculum is just jam-packed with everything else. And um, so the way that I approached this was the first year medical students, I worked with them for about three hours and it was really an opportunity to go through and 
have them start thinking about what it means to be a professional student. So getting away from the idea that social media is something that's completely personal and moving into this frame and the space of thinking, okay, now I represent myself, but I also represent the medical field. So I was really lucky to be able to have the um, them for that long and also in small groups. So it was between 12 and 18 students at a time. So we were really able to deep dive some of these issues. And then I also have programs for second, third, and fourth years. This actually is a perfect lead in to why are we here? I think I just assumed that uh, social media as far as healthcare providers were concerned, was just a place to sort of post things about your your food and your pets uh, and to stay away from in a professional capacity because that feels dangerous to me or like there, there's a lot of places that you can go wrong if you are on there in your capacity with, with work. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. That fear comes up a lot with folks in STEM as well. Everybody is just so afraid to do something wrong. And that's why I think guidance is so helpful for people because... Everybody's on some form of social media. Most folks want to be engaging. They just want to make sure that they're doing it correctly. So in a lot of ways, I feel like I empower people to be getting their message out there and making sure that they're not falling for some common pitfalls. What are some of the benefits to, we're, we're going to talk about pitfalls later and all mm-hmm. the scary stuff, but but why should any, let's talk about this more generally, STEM uh, across the board, why should we be involved in social media? Um, Well, I think what's really incredible about this technology is if you think about things before social media, if you wanted to get a message out there, you had to go through a journalist or maybe you had to go through whatever steps it would be to take to be on radio or to be on the evening news. And so there are major, major gatekeepers to communicating with the public. Now, because of technology and social media, we have the ability to communicate with anybody we want to. And it's just, it's not on a local level either. It's globally. So that's incredibly powerful. And I think we take that for granted because we grew up in the internet age. So from that respect, you can really get your ideas out, but you also have the opportunity to positively influence current discussions, especially around misinformation. Do you think that we are going to get to a point where it is the the expectation or even even a mandate for people who are professional scientists or or healthcare providers to to have a presence and combat some of that disinformation? I hope not, actually, because I think that you really want people to be on there who are passionate about this and forcing people to do this, having social media come across as a chore, you're going to get people who don't want to be communicating. So I think it's very important to support the people who do want to be communicating and really provide them the resources so that they're doing it in the best way possible. Well, then let's let's give some guidance. Do you have any general principles for for how to participate in, in social media and things that you want to aim for. And we'll, we'll get to the negative stuff later. And I guess part two of that question is, do you happen to have any favorite resources or things that you've written to help guide people? Yeah, so I'm starting to publish more. I've actually just been focusing on putting things out on Twitter, which hasn't been the best thing to do in terms of academic currency. But um, I I mean, for what it's worth, that's how I found you. (laughs) See, I mean, it helps. But um, I, I do have some tutorials that can be that I can share with you that people can reference. 
In the show notes, I will have linked Sarah's Twitter page as well as her Medium page and a couple of other places to find her. At the top of her Twitter handle is a pinned thread that includes many of her Twitter threads. So it's like a thread of a thread. It's very meta. But if you want to take a look at some of the discussions that she's had where she she has longer form communication on Twitter, that's where to find them. And I'll link to those in the show notes. And in terms of best practices, I think it's really important to be transparent. That is first and foremost for STEM and medicine. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by transparent? Do you mean just in a not having an anonymous profile or in being open about what exactly it is you do and what your your knowledge is and where it's not? Yes. So where your knowledge and your skill set is versus where it's not. Um, I really encourage people to focus on what they know versus what they think they know. Um, which can definitely be tricky for all of us. We have these these biases. On that point, something that I've seen you do that I was really impressed with, particularly recently when you've been posting on some of the chiropractic practices that are expressing some cures or some ways to go about preventing COVID, and you have been identifying some of the scientific fallacies in there. But you you have also very clearly stated when you have reached the end of your awareness, and, and you make it very clear that you are not a clinician. I could speculate. I can make some very easy assumptions on some of the things that I post, but I I don't want to jump to conclusions because once you start doing that, you get into the habit of doing it. And then all of a sudden, one day you're saying something that's incorrect and you've lost your audience. And that's the biggest thing that I'm afraid of. Among the many worries that I have when I participate in social media is feeling the need to address every problem or every bit of misinformation. And and it sounds like that's really not the way to go about it. Right. Yeah. And actually, I just submitted a piece to Lancet about this, where I go through and I say, this is what I think I know as somebody outside of science, outside of medicine. This is how I would approach it, being a skeptic on this. Um, And you don't need to have the scientific background um, in order to be a critical thinker. I love that point. So point number one was was kind of be transparent online. Any, any other general guiding principles? Just to remember that anything you put down is permanent. So stuff that it, it can resurface over and over and over again. And for instance, if people are referring to tutorials that I put together a few years ago, that's awesome. I've seen some pretty serious infighting between physicians and just have to remember your colleagues are seeing that I don't want it to be a place where we can't talk about anything controversial, but it often doesn't make you look good to air everybody's dirty laundry out in public, particularly in a vindictive way. Definitely. Something that I think is interesting that I'm not sure many people know is on a lot of social media platforms, you can edit what you have posted. Twitter is not that way. Once you have written it, you you cannot go and change what you have written. Why is that? <laughs> I don't know. It, it's super frustrating, but at the same time, I think it's okay. Because if you imagine, I'm not going to name names, but any of our political figures, if they were able to go in and just edit tweets as they pleased, just having that record, it, I think it's good from that perspective. But then at the same time, you've seen my feed. I have countless grammatical errors and typos. And so it's just, it can be so frustrating. But yeah, I, I struggle with this a lot when there's a, a small uh, spelling mistake or punctuation or grammatical thing that you're wondering if it really takes away from the message. And I think most of the people you're directing it to aren't going to uh, 
really ruin you for it. Um, but when you're dealing with some trolls, that that's an easy way to to go at it. And I have struggled sometimes with once people have started to interact with a tweet, I don't really want to delete it and and remove some of that interaction. Yeah. You're fine. Just leave it. Own the typos. It's social media. It's not academic publishing. <laughs> so you're fine. Uh, this this is an interesting thing to talk about because it came up this week. We are uh, working on developing a, a Twitter feed for a, a national organization. And it has been difficult to get some of the people whose entire career has been based around traditional, heavily edited papers to to get the the speed that is needed to to actually be involved in social media and the fact that there are going to be some errors that come along with that. That's a fun group to work with, though, in terms of workshops. <laughs> I have a lot of fun with that. Do you have any easy or uh, high point suggestions for maybe convincing some folks in your section or your department that are worried about jumping in on social media, that, that it's a, a worthwhile thing? Listen to them, don't interrupt them. Let them go into great detail about whatever their concerns are. Validate that and then provide them with some context on how and why it's important to you. I found that to be most valuable. And then also um, doing a little bit of homework beforehand and knowing key people within the field who are active on social media can really also be very good supporting evidence. Do you have any general guiding principles on what qualifies as a HIPAA violation? I know that it's fairly common for people to talk about hypothetical cases, but how much do you have to change that to to make it acceptable to talk online? The second part of that question is, if you are mostly making up a case, does does that somehow ruin your your credibility? Really tricky topic. Um, There's always some discussion and debate about what qualifies as a HIPAA violation. Obviously, if you're putting PHI out there, then that's a clear-cut case. But If you're talking about a patient that you saw earlier in the day and you mention some unique qualities to that interaction um, or to that case, then connecting the dots on that, that can be a HIPAA violation. So it's really, there's a gray area with this. And I think people are very thrown off by it. And there's been some interesting conversations involving that. Now, when you start to add fiction into these narratives to make it so that it isn't a HIPAA violation, but you're not clearly disclosing that, people might look at that and say, you know, this physician is putting out all this information, I should report it. And that has come up. That's not just a hypothetical. I've spoken with physicians where they've said that they've been reported and they've had to clarify. So now they go ahead and have that disclaimer whenever they post. This, I think, has been interesting because we've been talking about it locally recently that uh, even if you think that you have changed lots of details and made up a case, if if a family member or a patient thinks that it's about them, that is potentially trouble for you. Mm -hmm. Is there anywhere that has published any guidelines or, or policy statements on this that people could reference? Not that I'm aware of. What else do you talk about in your your workshops as far as, you know, high points for people to take home? So let's see, I, I encourage people to really figure out which audience they want to be speaking to. And the most basic groups that I break it up to into for new users is do you want to be engaging the public or do you want to be engaging your colleagues? And of course, you can do both um, strategies as well, a combination, but that 
pretty much puts people in a very defined path. So what's great about engaging colleagues is you can be as technical as you want to be. And I think that feels very safe to a lot of people. Whereas engaging the public, there's always some concern about what message is being lost when you're translating something that's highly technical to something that anybody can understand. And I think now in the context of COVID-19, it's becoming much more difficult to be able to translate information in a way that isn't sensational. So science communication has definitely taken an important role and it needs some expertise. If you are primarily presenting to colleagues in in a scientific way, how should we handle it if somebody shows up in that feed discussing things that are clearly incorrect? Do you have any any guidance for for how to address a, a I don't know I don't know if I want to call him a troll, but somebody who's who's tagging onto what you're saying that is correct with things that are incorrect? That that will definitely happen. But if there's a scientific consensus that this person is incorrect then I think most people don't spend too much time dealing with it. For instance, if you're talking about COVID-19 and then all of a sudden one of these conspiracy theorists who is all about 5G or Bill Gates finds their way into your feed, anybody who's engaging is going to say, okay, well, we don't have to worry about this person. And you just move on. And maybe there's somebody who's going to be trying to debunk the claims, but very quickly you'll see that it's it's not really possible. Yeah, this I struggle with a lot because I, I just don't want to let that sit, but that is generally not the the person that I am actually gonna convince. And I think there's a there's very few wins in in arguing with somebody like that. I'm with you. I'm I'm with you, especially since we're all spending so much more time on um, social media. Seeing these things can be very disturbing and upsetting. Where do you stand on taking a break from social media? I think it it can be such an in-your-face thing that when you have been in it a little bit too much or maybe had a bad experience, do you have any any guidance for how people should should look at that? Do you need to tell your following that you're going away for a couple of days? Do you even need to address it? Are you going to lose people or lose your message if you if you don't post for a few days? Um, People have a lot of opinions about this topic. I think it really boils down to whatever you're comfortable with. There's nothing wrong with giving people a heads up, especially if you are communicating quite often over DM or just have general discussions that you're expected to jump into. Some people might find it tacky, but that's okay. You're not giving your message to them then. But it's also acceptable to drop off for a few days. You don't owe anybody an explanation. And if you want to be more private, then be more private with your life and your engagement. It's, it's really how you want to be using it. And I think that's one of the great things about social media is there, there are no rules associated with this. You have to create your own. And that's where I wrapped up the discussion with Sarah, although she left it on a cliffhanger for me because my very type A nature needed those rules from her. And the last thing she said to us was that you might have to make your own on social media. And I I hope the context of that was very clear. I'm going to link out to all the places that you can find Sarah. Check out her work. It's absolutely fantastic. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. You can email me at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or you can find the rest of my work on my website, www.littlebigmed.com. If you want to hear more things like this, you're tired of all the non-clinical topics, you want to give me any feedback whatsoever, 
go ahead and hit me up on any of those platforms. If you like the work that I'm doing, it would really help me to find additional listeners. If you could go to your favorite podcast platform, leave a review, five stars, of course. Thanks for taking a listen.